Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Naomi Smith and today we're going to be talking about one of my favourite subjects, food. Earlier this year, many of us couldn't get hold of certain basic food items like pasta, flour and sugar because they had been panic bought as we approached lockdown. Only those old enough to remember rationing will have experienced anything like it before. But as we inch ever closer towards leaving the Brexit transition period, the threat of disruptions to our food supply are increasing, and so too might prices. At the start of next year, the UK will have to pay more for some everyday food to be imported into the country, and this is because of what is known as the UK Global Tariff. While we were part of the EU, we could bring all this food into the UK for free, but the UK Global Tariff will bump up the price on a range of basic food items. That means tinned tomatoes, olive oil, baked beans, pasta and pulses will all get more expensive, sometimes by up to 20%. And there are still people in the UK who cannot afford to eat properly. One in 10 children went hungry at some point last year. Now, coronavirus has forced many businesses to think about closing down or letting staff go, meaning that some families are becoming even more vulnerable. And that's why Best for Britain, together with food writer Jack Monroe and Save British Farming, among others, launched the Affordable Food Deal campaign last month. We want to raise awareness about these tariffs with politicians, decision makers and the public and encourage both Westminster and Brussels to reach a deal that ensures our food remains affordable, accessible and healthy. We want the government to guarantee that the price of basic foods will be protected and the best way, of course, to do that is via a comprehensive UK-EU free trade agreement with barrier-free access for food. And for medicine would probably be quite nice too. One politician who needs no convincing on that front is joining me today. Daniel Zeichner is the Labour MP for Cambridge and the Shadow Minister for Food, Farming and Rural Affairs. Daniel, welcome to The Bunker. How are you? Well, it's great to be on the show, Naomi. I'm very, very well. Really looking forward to discussing food with you. Oh, good. Well, as I said, you know, food is one of my favourite subjects and therefore lack of food is definitely one of my least favourite subjects and one I get worried about. The news headlines um, are far more likely to cover Britain's obesity crisis than its food poverty. You know, apparently we're a nation of fatties who could all do with losing a few pounds each. So who cares if people can't eat uh, as much next year? It'll do us good, right? But of course, being overweight and undernourished aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Daniel, can you start us off by explaining to listeners just how hungry many British people are? 
Well, I think many people listening will be astonished that in one of the richest countries in the world, there are so many people um, who are going without food in our country. And the figures um, are really pretty awful. I mean, one of the things is um, the government doesn't really count. Um, And so a lot of this is down to surveys by excellent organisations like the Food Foundation and the Trussell Trust. But um, we think that um, about 2.2 million people in the UK are severely food insecure. Um, And that's a technical definition. But put, put simply... Millions of our fellow citizens at some point in the, in the last few weeks will have skipped meals during the day. And that is a truly shocking thing. The counting might improve a bit, actually. My colleague, Emma Leal Buck, has done a heroic job. She introduced something called the Food Insecurity Bill a few years ago. And she's forced the government to include surveys of people's um, food insecurity in the annual Family Resources Survey. And that's going to report for the first time um, in March next year. So we'll begin to get perhaps a clearer idea of the levels. The basic point is far too high in a rich country. Now, the, the causes are complicated, uh, and I'm sure we'll be going on to that. But of course, we've also seen the extraordinary growth in food bank usage, which um, is troubling for many of us, because although we all salute the work of the food banks, we shouldn't be needing them in this country. Absolutely. And and how geographically distributed is hunger across the country? Is it is it basically that the south are well fed and the north less so? Again, uh, we're relying on, on surveys by various organisations. Uh, Loughborough University did some recent work which showed that parts of the north and the midlands have seen the, the fastest rises in children living below the breadline. But I've seen other statistics recently which have shown that um, my own region in the east of England has also um, seen pretty big rises as well. So, I mean, one of the things I think we, we're really going to have to be better at in future is actually measuring properly the, the scale of need and the scale of deprivation. And I think it's worth always saying it's, it's not a lack of food in this country. It is very much about a lack of income. And I think a point all of the people working in, in this area would always make is that the first thing they want to do is actually address that that income gap. It's because people haven't got the money to go to the shop to buy the food, which is the basic problem. It's not a lack of food in the system. Uh, uh, the great Amartya Sen makes that point as well uh, when he does all of his work on famines. And I think he uh, his thesis is essentially that, that no famine has ever occurred because of a lack of food, but a lack of access to food. Uh, and exactly. so I think, I think that makes your point. And uh, you, you've said that it's very difficult for us to, to know the true scale and spread uh, because you know, we just don't measure this properly. But do you have a sense of how we compare with other developed nations, other European countries on, on the hunger scale? Well, sadly, not good. Um, there was a report by the Food and Agriculture Organization um, a couple of years ago, 2018, I think, and it put us at the, the highest in Europe. Sadly, we're responsible for one in five of all severely food insecure people in Europe. And that, again, is is not something um, which we should feel anything other than than very, very sorry about, because I think a lot of people still feel that somehow Britain leads the world on lots of things. Well, I'm afraid we're, we're currently leading Europe on food insecurity, and that's something we really shouldn't be in that position. 
And you've you've talked about therefore you know the the, the greatest cause is an income or you know the, the poverty angle of all of this, um, but let's talk a little bit about the impact of of being hungry. We saw the government do one of its now very common U turns earlier this summer, um, or after M- Marcus Rashford got involved uh, and and sort of pushed them to extend free school meals to children through the holidays. What do we know about the impact of diet or poor diet on school-aged children? Almost all MPs will know that in their constituencies, through the through the summer holidays, before the COVID crisis, um, there have always been problems. And I, I've seen in my own city the good work that um, Cambridge City Council does on, on very quietly, quite often, um, providing facilities for people to cook for others, providing support. But what it, what it consistently shows is the impact on educational attainment, um, and that, that is absolutely proven and clear. And it, it just seems astonishing to me that it took a footballer like Marcus Rashford to shame the government into that U-turn when it was quite clearly um, it needed to be done in this particular set of circumstances. Of course, the challenge is going to be to make sure that we embed this for the future, to make sure that um, people are not going to be having to face this fight Again, um, I've just seen some, some recent research from Save the Children that's shown that seven in ten families claiming universal credit or child tax credits um, are, are having to basically cut back just to pay for essential food. And the impact on children's learning is, is pretty clear, I'm afraid. And obviously this year it's sort of become more marked because of the pandemic. How has coronavirus affected the number of people in Britain who are are food insecure or or relying on food banks? And um, I I can only imagine that as the recession takes hold and unemployment rises, those figures are probably only going to go in in a worse direction. Well, I I fear you're absolutely right. And again, the, the figures are pretty staggering. The Food Foundation reckoned that the number of adults who are food insecure has quadrupled during lockdown. And certainly the figures we've been getting from the Trussell Trust, who support many of the food banks across the country, um, are reflecting that. So a, a huge increase in the number of people um, accessing food banks. It's been a massive effort by all the organisations involved, both to get the food and the surplus food that's available from quite often the supermarkets, but also then to maintain the food distribution systems because a lot of the food banks in the past relied on volunteers who quite often were older and having to shield. So it's been a, it's been a huge effort by everybody. But what is very clear is that um, that level of need is unlikely to go away. And as you say, if we begin to see large rises in unemployment, I fear we're going to see the same situation happening again. I'm just looking at the statistics I've got, the Trussell Trust tell me that 89% increase in the need for emergency food parcels in April this year compared to the previous April. And that, of course, is entirely going to be down to the pandemic. And presumably part of the impact is that, that parents were suddenly having to feed children and, and themselves you know, more meals than they would do when children were able to be at school full time. Uh, and so, again, that need to get the schools back so that that, that pressure can come off parents. Absolutely. Very, very important. And I think it actually shows just how important for for, for many families uh, school meals are. And of course, there's been a a long running set of issues around around free school meals in general. 
I was very pleased. I, I won't always give credit to, to um, other, other political parties, but I was pleased when the coalition introduced the free school meal programme. It's something that, that a lot of us have been arguing for for many years, and Labour would certainly like to see that extended to all primary school pupils in general. And I think the evidence is now very clear that having a healthy, nutritious meal in the middle of the day is good for many, many reasons, including educational reasons. And so food poverty, I think, is how we have to talk about it, 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 you know, because it is so linked, as you say, to that that lack of income, that lack of ability to to afford even basic food items. And it's therefore both an indicator of societal problem like poor social care and also a source of social ills like poor health, poor mental health, etc., just at a time when we need to be healthier than ever to fight a pandemic. And so I'm, I'm genuinely perplexed as to why the government isn't doing more to ensure that we retain access to affordable, high-quality European food. What are your thoughts on that, Daniel? Like, what, what do you think it is that, that, that is stopping them for, from, from you know, doing a good deal so that we don't go hungry? Because it's, it, you know, so many of us already are, and this is only going to make it worse. Well, I think um, it's not just you who's puzzled, Naomi. I think many people are puzzled. There was a very powerful report from the House of Lords issued about three or four weeks ago now um, based on work done over quite a long period. And the conclusion they came to was that our our food system is essentially broken. Henry Dimbleby is undertaking a review of or working on a food strategy for the government. And again, he reported a few weeks ago and essentially um, came, made the same point, that the food system is, is very good at producing a lot of food for the country, but it's food that, by and large, is not particularly good for us. It's making us, making us ill in a lot of cases. Um, so there's a fundamental rethink is needed on the whole food system in this country. And I hope that in the future, if I'm in a fortunate position of being a future food minister, that's what I'll be overseeing. Because we haven't had a proper food strategy in this country since Food 2030, which was launched in the the last few years of the last Labour government under Gordon Brown by Hilary Benn. So for the last kind of decade or so, we've drifted along without any clear kind of focus. And it's just been left to the market. And the market's very good at some things, but it's not necessarily good at, at, at... Uh, social justice, or healthy outcomes. I'm really keen to understand a bit more about our self-sufficiency when it comes to food. How much of our food do we import and, and why? You know, is it is it economic reasons, as you sort of alluded to? Is it climactic reasons? What's driving it? How much do we import and why? A very big question and much argued over because, of course, it's complicated. Of course, we can't grow bananas here and nor should we try to grow some things which um, would require very um, heavy energy inputs to make possible. It actually makes much more sense to transport things from other places in the world where they're grown more, more efficiently. But unfortunately, there is plenty of stuff that we could grow here that we that we don't. So it is generally reckoned and it's slightly complicated because – Obviously, we export food as well, but we're only about 58 to 60 percent of our food do we produce ourselves. And 30 years ago, that was about 74, 75 percent. So there's a there's a big question as to whether we should be growing more ourselves. And I strongly and many others strongly argue that particularly fruit and vegetables um, there's no reason why we shouldn't be growing many more apples, for instance, in this country. But it's the the economics of the market and the 
uh, stranglehold that, frankly, the supermarkets have over our supply systems mean that it works in their interest rather than, than many would argue in the wider interest, not least because, of course, the world is perhaps not as, as safe and secure a place as it might have seemed a decade ago. And we had a big debate in the agriculture bill um, around this, around whether the, the government should actually be looking more seriously at, at what we would call food security and, and sufficiency. And I think that's going to become go higher and higher up the agenda when you've got people like Trump using trade policy for all kinds of uh, nefarious reasons. It is far less sensible to rely on importing food. And Tim Lang, who's written, who's a real expert in this, has made the very sensible point, really, that we used to rely on on our armed forces, on our navy, to make sure that our food was was, was secure for our country. Well, we, we can't rely on that anymore. It makes a lot of sense for a whole series of reasons and for good environmental reasons to produce more here. And I hope that's the way we're going to go. Well, so do I, but it's not going to happen overnight. You know, even if we were to you know, have a big change tomorrow and the government say, right, we're going to polytunnel over the whole of the Northeast, grow tomatoes all year round, it, 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 apple trees, whatever, they're just going to take a long time to, to get going and, and bear fruit, quite literally. So how dependent are we on food imports from the EU? Because we're going to need to, to import it until these things grow. Absolutely. And that is a key question, of course, about 30%. Um, and you are absolutely right. There is no way you can just magically move to a, to, to a different system. It would have to be done um, gradually. Um, and it would have to be done, I suspect, with agreement. And I'm not one of those people who thinks we should try and grow everything ourselves. Of course, we, we shouldn't. It makes perfect sense. And we've had a very good relationship with our European neighbours for many, many years. And the system works very, very well at the moment. The question is, why would you want to disrupt it? And without rehearsing the uh, the debate around Brexit, um, this is one of the real threats, I would say, that if we don't get a sensible agreement in the next few months, and it actually probably needs to be even sooner because some of the contracts that the food industry uses with suppliers, some of those contracts will be being drawn up now. So leaving it to December, frankly, is not a good idea. So even whether we get a no-deal Brexit or not, we are in dangerous territory here, and the the just-in-time system, which means that, that food is being moved all the time in and out of Europe, um, means we are very, very vulnerable and dependent, and it could be much more difficult than the COVID crisis. So we produce about 60%. Uh, yeah. We are then importing the remaining 40 of which 30% is coming from the EU. So that, you know, that, yeah. that just puts into sort of very, very stark... Uh, pie chart, uh, you know, yeah. context. How how dependent we are. So if we don't get the comprehensive trade deal that was, after all, promised in the Conservative manifesto, what is the risk to our food supply chain beyond price increases, or, or is it the case that the rich will still be able to pay an awful lot of money to get a lettuce, you know, from from the south of Spain in December or you know, January, February, but 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 the others can't, or, or or is it is there a risk that actually stuff just won't get in? Well, absolutely, there's a risk because there's all the checks that will have to be made um, at, at the ports, which at the moment don't happen, don't have to happen. And, of course, we don't know um, how complicated or difficult that might be. But uh, just the, the, the preparations that the government had to put in place before last year's threat of no deal show how worried they are. Giant lorry parks um, near Kent, 
we don't know, of course, the, the attitude that um, that France would take. They could be difficult if it's a difficult um, and failed negotiation. Uh, one always hopes that sense will prevail and that this won't happen. But I have to say, I'm deeply troubled by it. And of course, the complexity around the Northern Ireland arrangements um, are, are fantastically difficult, particularly for people in Northern Ireland. So there's a huge range of problems. And we are now, what, almost at the beginning of September. We're only three or four months away from that potential moment. So a real risk. And have coronavirus food shortages prepared the government for no-deal Brexit food shortages? Or are they a, a very sort of different kind of disruption? I think there'll be a, it would be very foolish to assume that because we got through that, that um, that, that means we're okay. And I, it, it worries me when I hear people saying that because it was a very different kind of set of problems. Frankly, at the beginning of the crisis, and um, I and my colleagues were in, in weekly touch with the supermarkets and people all the way down the supply chain, there were, were real worries that if the numbers of people going off sick with it had risen um, towards 20%, which is what people feared, then the whole system would have broken down. Now, as it happened, that isn't what happened. And in fact, um, in some cases, absenteeism absolutely dropped as, as people really responded. So it wasn't the same kind of test. Um, this is a very different situation. And uh, I don't think you can draw comparisons between the two, actually. And, you know, you've, you've made a very sort of stark and, and worrying case for, for how the next three months might pan out and what that might mean for us beyond January if we find ourselves in a situation where we don't have a deal. And some of our listeners will want to know why they've not heard more from Labour on this issue. Um, and, and perhaps they have a sense that the party is scared to talk about the negatives of Brexit now. How, how do you react to that? Well, I think the reason people don't hear from, from Labour is because we lost the election, frankly. Um, people don't hear much from oppositions in the early parts of Parliament. It's not for people like myself want to, not wanting to talk about it. We want to talk about it all the time. But the truth is that for the media in general, it's far more interesting to talk to rebel Tories than it is opposition members. Uh, the opposition day in, day out is making these points. But opposition criticises government isn't very newsworthy, whereas uh, backbench conservatives um, criticising government is. So we are making these points week in, week out. But this is not a complaint. This is just an acknowledgement of what happens when you lose elections, which is why it's a very bad idea um, to lose elections, in my experience. <laughs> and I will start winning some. Well, if Labour was in government, what, what kind of deal for food imports with the EU would they be pushing for, do you think? Well, um, I... I I don't speak um, for the Brexit policy um, for the party, but um, I think everything that we have said points to us having a much closer arrangement. Um, and certainly um, on, on these kind of issues, I think we would be looking to have something as, as close as possible to the set of arrangements we had before, because certainly uh, in, in this area, they've worked very well. We've done very well out of having a, a close relationship in terms of food supplies. Um, it, it has produced uh, good value food for um, large numbers of people in our country and it's and it works well both ways so I think we want to keep it as close as we could 
and and from close relationships to so-called special relationships, how real is the risk that a, a U.S. deal will mean our our ready meals and processed foods will get infiltrated by that notorious chlorinated chicken and hormone injected beef? Well, very real, I'm afraid. To some extent, of course, this was the point of Brexit, you know, to 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 really change things. And this is why I think uh, this is why I worry the government um, keeps. Um, saying, "Oh, you, you know, we, we promised it won't happen. It won't happen. It won't happen." But they refused to put it in the legislation. When the agriculture bill came for the Commons, we put down very strong amendments. Actually, some other Conservatives uh, from the back benches put down amendments in the trade bill. We did the same. But the government is absolutely not prepared to put in legislation, and I understand why because they want to do deals, so-called, and those deals will, will involve trade-offs. And one of the trade-offs, and the Americans are absolutely clear on this, they want agriculture um, to be opened up to operate on their standards. And exactly the same is happening at the moment, incidentally, with the, the Japanese trade deal. They too um, are digging their heels in. So this idea that somehow Britain's just going to, after 45 years of not doing trade negotiations, is going to wander around the world getting much, much better deals, I'm afraid is a fantasy actually, we're not in a very strong position at all. We might end up in a in a, a much weakened position. And that is a real worry. And around the food safety issues, I mean, let, let's be clear, there are, there are arguments about different production systems around the world. And it's not just America. We worry about the standards that might well be applied from other places like Brazil. And there's a real environmental issue here because a lot of the, the feed for cattle, for instance, is now being produced by deforesting places like um, Brazil. And I don't think British consumers want to be part of that real damage to the international climate system. But that is where a lot of this is leading. We are going to be pressing hard all the way through at every opportunity. But at the moment, the government do have the numbers in the House of Commons. But I'm encouraged that people in the House of Lords certainly um, are, at the moment, looking like they, they want to challenge the government too on this. So there's going to be quite a battle ahead in the next few weeks. And that is the end of the show and all we've got time for. But to support our campaign, please go and sign the petition at affordablefooddeal.org, where you'll also find some exclusive recipes that Jack Monroe cleverly constructed for us too. And unless your MP is Daniel Zeichner, please do write to them and let them know about the threat to our food supply too. Just visit bestforbritain.org slash food, whack in your postcode and it does all the hard work for you. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. What's in store for you between now in the house sitting again next week more badges i'm afraid uh, there's a real threat um to uh, to our badger population from the government we've got 10 days to save them and i'm working very hard with colleagues on that so although we're in recess actually politics goes on all the time oh well good luck to you on that front i am uh, very very firmly on your side and, and all things animal rights it was great to have you on the show and thanks to you our lovely listeners too we've got a live show coming on zoom for patreon backers only on thursday the 24th of september at 8 p.m and with luck an actual physical live show at the leicester square theater on the 21st of january covid permitting you can find out more if you back us on the crowdfunding platform patreon that's it for now We'll see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. 
theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmaster production. Mm-hmm.